This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. Tonight's going to be a little bit different. Tonight we're going to be not talking about the hope that's in our heart. We're going to talk about the hope that's in God's heart. We're going to talk about this expectation, this anticipation that exists right now in the heart of the Father. What he longs for, what he craves, what he hopes so much in his heart. And it's, and it's amazing and humbling. And, and so last week we've talked a lot, we talked about really explicitly the gospel, right? What Jesus has done, that we were, we were dead in our trespasses and we became alive in Christ and that we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And that the good news, right? Like this is amazing what God has done for us and it gives us hope. But it continues and it starts to talking about that it's actually bigger, I hear this, that the work of the cross goes beyond your own personal salvation. And this is important. It do, does it uh, incorporate your personal salvation? Is that a big part of it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so huge to the heart of God. But God's love is so massive and so big, it actually moves beyond that incredible, profound moment where we get to experience salvation, and it moves into a greater vision for all of us, for this world, the, the world that he's creating because of what Jesus has done. So we're going to figure out what makes God excited. What is he hoping for? What is he longing for, for the future? And so if you guys have a Bible, we're going to be hanging out in a couple different passages. One's going to be Acts 21, and the other one's going to be Ephesians chapter 2. And as you're turning there and getting ready, uh, just, a, just a few things we're going to be talking about tonight in Ephesians 1. So we're going to be talking about God's vision and hope for one people. We're going to talk about this idea that there will be one new humanity that all of us will be built together. It's not just we are made whole as individuals, but all of us become whole together. We're also going to be talking about one access, this, this ability that every single one of us through Jesus now has access to God in relationship with him. And lastly, we're going to be talking about one household, that not only does he desire for us to be connected with each other and with him, but we're being built into something beautiful, something that will change the world around us. And so I just want to just challenge you guys not just to listen for the hope that can exist in your heart, but what is God longing for um, through tonight. But before we dive into the actual text, we, we have to lay this groundwork, and, and we do this a lot. We have to figure out the context of what's happening here because it's within that that the passage we're about to read just comes to life. And there are all sorts of worldviews and presuppositions and cultural happenings that were making and forming these words and these arguments and these and these things that Paul's writing about through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And one of those things has a lot to do with the fact that he's in prison when he's writing this. See, Paul planted this church in Ephesus about 10 years prior. He spent about three years there. And then he goes and plants other churches, moves around, and eventually gets arrested in Jerusalem, almost dies. And then he continues to appeal before greater and greater courts to so the fact he's in Rome to appear before Caesar. And the question is, why? What's it about? And it has a lot to do with what we're going to be reading about tonight, but it never mentions it. But the reason why Paul's in jail is because of an Ephesian man. 
A man from Ephesus is the reason why he's in prison. So before we read our text tonight, let's just go backwards to Acts 21. Let's find out what happens with this man and his happenings at the temple. So Acts 21, starting in verse 27, says, When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place, talking about the temple. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So, so here we go. So let's just call him Tro for short. So Tro is hanging out with Paul. They're at the temple, and they start to make these assumptions that he's bringing this Ephesian man, this Greek, this Gentile, into the temple, and they are outraged. Why? Why would this make them so angry? How angry, you may ask? Let's find out. So verse 30 says, The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. Uh Uh-oh. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops and the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, get rid of him. Wow. There's something about this Ephesian man in a temple that caused a riot that almost ended Paul's life. Beaten with the intent of death to the point where he's literally having to be protected by Roman soldiers to get out of this place. Why is this such a big deal for these Jewish people? Why is this temple something that is so sacred to them? So we have to unpack that and understand that in order to understand what Paul's about to lay before us and why it's so beautiful and profound what Jesus has done. So a couple of things I want to lay out before you. Can we put up that temple, uh, the picture of the temple So before this existed, Israel was a small nation. And when they were rescued from their slavery in Egypt, God gave them his presence, and his presence dwelt within a tabernacle, which just means tent. It It was an incredibly elaborate tent, but everywhere they moved as they were a nomadic people, that temple, that tabernacle went with them. And as they settled into Jerusalem hundreds of years later, under King David, they began to desire to build a temple for the presence of God. And so David gathered supplies. His son Solomon, who's very famous, wisest person who's ever lived, wealthiest person maybe that's ever lived, builds this elaborate temple. And temples in that day were significant because what it was telling to the rest of the world is, look at how wealthy and powerful our God is who dwells within this temple. 
It was a message to the nations. It was sacred for the people. It was national pride that they, would, they were the Jewish people. They were Yahweh's people. And as they built this temple, there were specific instructions, instructions given by the law or given by the Lord. And as they had built this, as they disobeyed the law, a nation came in, and like any other nation, the very first things they would do is they would destroy the temple because what that would send a message is, your God has no power. So when Assyria came in and conquered Israel and Babylon after that to Jerusalem, they destroyed Solomon's temple. And it was not until the Roman era that in order to appease and to gain favor with the Jews, Rome let Herod, King Herod, who was kind of a governor in that area, build a new temple, which would look something kind of like this. And according to the customs, so the Jewish people who have been enslaved for hundreds of years now have this gem in their midst. It's their temple. They have a temple again. And so this was a huge, uh, a huge sense of, of pride for the Jewish people and the Israelites that we know where God dwells and we're a part of that. But if you look at that, I want to make a couple observations here. The very first thing I want to talk about is that the temple gathered and separated people from people. So people would gather to the temple, but as soon as they got to the temple, they would separate. So if you can pull up that picture again, you'll notice, I don't know if you can read it, it's a little bit small, but this, this whole area is called the court of the Gentiles. Now, if you're new to the Bible, Gentiles just means non-Jew. And our Bible that we read today was made up, the Old Testament is all about the Israelites and Jewish people, and Jesus himself was a Jew. And so this is why this is a big deal. So there was space for people to come into this temple who were non-Jewish people, but they had their court. Over here, they had the women's court. So if you were Jewish, but you were a woman, you could only go this far. And after this, if you were a man, you could enter in. This is the holy place where if you were a priest or a Levite, you could enter the holy place. And then in the holy place, there was a curtained area which was called the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest once a year could go in to make one sacrifice for the nation. So the very first thing that we need to know about the temple, about, about religion in that day, was the temples were created to separate people from people. You're in, you're out. Your race, Gentile, literally the Greek word is ethne. Where we get our word ethnicity from. So when they call someone Gentile, it literally was a racist term. And when Gentiles were called pagans, it's the same word, ethne. It's, just, it's very much, it's very racially divided. And then it, maybe you're not the, weren't the right gender, so you're a woman, you're on the outer court, and I'm a male, but maybe I'm not a Levite, I'm from the tribe of Judah, so I can't go that much further. So you imagine what happens in that society and their spiritual context is they are very divided amongst each other. A matter of fact, on one of these walls, there is an ancient artifact that they dug up from Herod's temple. It literally reads this. No one of another nation to enter within the fence and enclosed round the temple, and whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. Etched in the stone, in these walls, says, if you pass this line, you will die, and it's your fault. Huge. It's a massive division. The second thing that we have is not just separation people from people. The second thing is the temple gathered and separated people from God. So people would gather there to meet with God, but it's also very, very clear you can't get too close. There's separation from what God was doing, from who you were. 
The third thing that would happen is the temple gathered and secured awe and identity. We talked about this. The temple, it was the temple of Artemis. It was the temple of the Jews, of Yahweh. It was a symbol to the world of how great their God was. It was identity. It was the same way that we have our White House. It's not just a house. It represents something to our country, for better or for worse. It means something. The temple in that day meant something for those people. So we needed to understand on that. If you're like, what does this have to do with the message? Stick with me. It's about to actually really help us understand the power in Paul's words he's about to say. So uh, turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. As you're doing that, I just want to um, just tell a story, because our first point tonight is talking about God's vision, his hope, the purpose and the vision of the cross was that, that div- those dividing walls are gone and we become one people. But there's, it's, there's something in us that from a very early age likes to separate us from them, right? And we like to think that that's a kid thing, but we do it all the time. And I remember in junior high, I came to this epiphany, like, whoa, fifth grade, I remember this realization, there's cool kids and not cool kids, so I'm going to be a cool kid, um, and so I just, I just became like a student of the cool kids. I'm like, anything that they would do, I'm like, okay, that's what I have to do to be cool, and so very quickly, I learned I had to skate, I had to be a skateboarder if I wanted to be cool, so I had never skateboarded in my life, and so I told my mom, let's go buy a skateboard, so we went to Target bad idea. Okay, I got made fun of, so I went and broke that skateboard on purpose and told him, I need to buy a real skateboard. Um, by the way, my 10-year-old, it was her birthday too, and she asked for a real skateboard this week, and I felt so proud of her. God is moving and forming her life, just a, a powerful thing that's happening. Um, anyway, so I became a skateboarder. They told, like, they were listening to punk music, so I started listening to punk music, and, and anything they would do, I would just uh, so I, I found myself just getting welcomed into this culture, and very quickly I realized it wasn't good enough for me just to be a skateboarder. That meant I had to hate rollerbladers. So I'm like, <laughs> got it. So hate the bladers. I'm a skater. I mean, like it was passionate animosity. It was like West Side Story on like our on our little campus, and so. And so we, the fifth graders were the skaters, and the sixth graders were the bladers. It was so epic. And so we, I remember we literally would hide in the bush, and as the rollerbladers would go by, we would have sticks, and we'd lay them out in front of their rollerblades, and they would go flying. Don't say, ah, they're rollerbladers. They don't have feelings, okay? They're subhuman. So... <laughs> And they would go flying, and we'd, like, and we'd grab our skateboard, and we'd be like, yeah, you, you suck. And we'd like run off through the dirt because they couldn't follow us because they were strapped in. That was like our big joke. <laughs> Come a long way. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but that was like my world, right? Like, is these dividing walls of like, oh, you're, okay, I get it. You're a blader. So um, I found out, early, I had like two people after first service come up to me like, head drooped, like, I'm a rollerblader. I'm like, thank you for confessing your sin. Let's pray. Let's pray together. <laughs> um, but this is happening on a massively large scale because as Paul's writing to this church in Ephesus, the large part of this congregation are not Jewish people. They didn't grow up in the traditions of Yahweh. They didn't grow up learning the Torah. They didn't go to synagogue. They they were outsiders, and they knew it. These Jewish Christians uh, created this club. They called themselves the Circumcision, which is, get a new name, right? Like, you got, <laughs> there are other names out there than this, but 
And they would hold it over these Gentile converts, like, you're, you know, like, I'm great, you're following Jesus as the Messiah, but you're not part of God's people. Listen to what Paul writes to these people. Remember the temple, remember the separation that's happening right here. This is what he says. Therefore, remember that formerly you who, were, who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time... You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreign, foreigners to the covenants of the promise. At this point, if you're a Gentile, you're like, oh, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is not like a metaphor. They were literally far away in the temple. They were far away from God in a very physical, tangible sense. Because of the blood of Christ, you've been brought near. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Remember that etched in stone statement. Do not cross this line or you will die. Paul's saying right here, that wall is destroyed. It's gone. What Christ has done on the cross is not just paid for your sin. He has removed the barriers that separate your brother from your brother, from your sister, from your sister. He removed all of that. You now become, listen to this, by setting, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was, here it is, listen to this, what a powerful thing. His purpose in the cross was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Powerful, powerful statement that's happening in this moment that he comes, he comes to these people who are sitting in this house church, probably some of them Jewish and some of them Gentile, and people feeling superior or, or feeling insignificant. And Paul writes to them and says, listen, the purpose of the cross was, was not for the Gentiles to become as good as the Jews. No, 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 no. There's one new humanity altogether. That wall of hostility is gone. So here's, here's the question, church. If the purpose and the vision of the cross is unity, what is the vision and the purpose of the enemy of our souls? It is by whatever means to divide us. You think that bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart isn't a big deal? You think racism isn't a big deal? You think the political toxicity in our nation isn't a big deal to God? It's a big deal because the minute we start dividing ourselves from our, our brothers and sisters, whether that is a large-scale, political, racist-type uh, scale, or whether it's an individual, you've hurt my feelings, you've offended me type of scale, whatever there's division within that, we have failed to reach the purpose of the cross. Jesus is saying, I'm, I did this, not just for you to be whole, but for us to be whole. Now, this is a, this is a beautiful concept and incredibly hard to practice. 
Because it's like, oh, that sounds so good. Coexist is an amazing concept. Makes a great bumper sticker on any Prius. But... But the practicality of it is really hard. And the only way it works, and this is where the desire of the, the secular culture around us is a good desire, but where it differs here is if you notice it says, in Christ. See, the desire is the same. The method is different. You see, for Jesus, he says, the only way that coexist happens is coexist within Christ. Because then every single political difference, every single difference in gender, in race, in age, in worldview, in morality even, goes away. Because he's conquered all of it. And he's made us one new humanity. What a beautiful narrative that the gospel tells us. That he's he's calling out for us. My, um, just so you guys know, my best friend now is a rollerblader. <laughs> it's true. His name's Justice. He spoke here. He blades, and I love him. So the gospel works. Anyways, point number two. <laughs> Ephesians 2.17 says this. So that's one, right? We're one people, one humanity. Point number two, we have one access now. 2.17 says, He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Far away, we're referring to Gentiles. He came and preached peace to you and peace to you who are near, referring to the Jews. For through him, we both have access to Father by one spirit. This is so beautiful and profound. It's not saying, hey, the covenant people of God, you guys get in first. You get the fast pass at Disneyland, right? Like you get the special VIP treatment and Gentiles, you get in too, but it just looks a little different. It says, no, 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 no. You didn't just get to this level. It's something new altogether. Now because of Jesus, he is the access point. And anyone can come and have relationship with the Father because of what Jesus has done. This is huge. Because do you remember what happened in that temple as it goes from the Gentile courts to the court where women were, to men, to Levi's, to the holy place, to the holy of holies, is at the cross. At the moment that Jesus is breathing his last, something happens to that dividing wall separating not people from people, but God from people. It says Matthew 27, 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, who do you think ripped it, right? Who do you think tore that temple curtain as he desired so much to have his children back with him? I love how this verse ends. The earth shook and the rocks split. God, help us not grow numb to the gift of the accessibility of who you are. I remember as a kid, we would go to the beach a lot, and um, I'd go boogie boarding, and oh, it was a beautiful time in life. There's lots of, like, neon colors, and, you know, like, the umbrellas just came out on the beach, and so we get there, and, and my parents have this bright yellow and pink large umbrella, and they're like, hey, Benji, like, you know, go, if you go out there, just remember the color of umbrella. I'm like, got it, mom and dad, and I'm like eight or nine years old, and we, and so I go out boogie boarding, get tired, 
and I, I'm, I'm, I'm going back in to see my mom and dad, and I see the, the pink and yellow umbrella, and I walk right towards it. And, um, and once I get up to it, I realize, I'm like, you're not my mom and dad. And all of a sudden, like kind of some panic, some fear, I'm like, okay, um, I'm lost. So I'm going to do exactly what you're supposed to do when you're lost. I'm going to start walking in one direction as long as I can go. So I grab my boogie board and start walking like a dog, and I just started going as far as I can remember. I mean, I was probably, and in my child's imagination, it felt like forever, you know, and so I was clear, I mean, it, like, it was a long way until I literally ran into a cliff edge. I couldn't walk anymore. There's no even people. I don't know where I'm going. I'm like, well, I should probably turn around. So I turned around going. Kid you not, I get, like, another probably mile, you know, half mile, mile down the road, and I get so tired. I'm like, I'm just going to take a nap. <laughs> I'm so mad at my younger self, <laughs> my poor parents. It's, like, probably been, like, 30, 40 minutes at this point. And so I literally just lay down and take a nap on my boogie board. <laughs> Get up, feels so great, right? Power nap, anyone? Big fan. So <laughs> I feel refreshed. Get going again. And walking down the beach, and all of a sudden, I remember so vividly, I see the lifeguard station, and I see my dad talking to the lifeguard. I remember just yelling, I'm like, Dad. And I see my dad. So I can literally count on my one hand the times in my life I've seen my dad cry. My dad just weeping running towards me and picks me up. Says, Benjamin, where were you? We thought you had drowned or lost. And I, at this point, I'm crying. I'm like, I just took a nap on my boogie board. <laughs> it's okay. Everyone needs a nap. You sound like you do. But, but I remember this moment so vividly in my mind because my dad was thinking about nothing else than finding a son. There's nothing else he wanted. Listen to this. There was nothing else my father wanted than to have me back. Listen, there's nothing else your father wants than to have you back. This is why that moment on the cross when Jesus breathed his last and the veil tore from top to bottom was the moment where our eyes had the ability to be illuminated in a new way and he locked eyes with us and he has not stopped pursuing you. And we have, we have access, full access. He's our peace now. We don't have to go through this courtyard and this courtyard and this priest and this pastor or this book or I'm not that holy. I don't really feel God. No, no, no. All of us, we get to just come to the Father and encounter him. And it's going to look different for you than it does for me. Maybe you need to go spend some time in creation. Maybe some of you guys need to go have coffee with a good friend. Some of you guys need to just dive into scripture and read a good book or listen to some worship music. I don't know how you connect with God, but what I do know is he wants nothing more than to connect with you. So don't let us find ourselves in this trap of becoming too busy or even worse, too numb to the gift of this one access point we have through Christ. Third thing, the hope in God's heart is that we would become one household. See, it goes beyond just becoming one humanity, 
and having full access to God. He desires for us to become something, to be built into something functional for his kingdom. Let's read this in Ephesians 2.19. says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Oh, this is so beautiful. This is so beautiful. Remember that temple. Remember the temple that has defined your cultural spirituality, your heritage, your identity, your pride. That temple is now you. You are the temple. Listen, Light Church, in a month, we get to be given this building. This is not church. This is not holy because it has a Bible verse above my head in elfish lettering, okay? (laughs) It is holy because you're here. This church started nine months ago, and God is not intending it for just to be an event or a gathering. He wants us to be built into a temple, a dwelling place for his presence. This is why it matters that we get together. It matters. And you're like, well, I don't feel like it. I think maybe we're missing the point. The point is God comes and uniquely dwells in the midst of his people when we come and let him build us into something and then form us into something. And what would happen? What would it look like? And people are like, oh, yeah, uh, Light Church, it, here's the address. Oh, this is what it looks like. This is the songs they sing. This is the words we, rather than God dwells there. God's there. I mean, that, that's what Paul's getting at here. But this is, it's not, it's, that's not just enough. I love this. In order for that to happen, it says that Christ has to be the chief cornerstone. Now, um, scholars debate as far as where the placement of the cornerstone would be in, in a building, in a house, in a, in a temple, in a structure. But where they, what they don't debate about is its purpose. You see, the cornerstone in that day was set, and everything that was built around it, every column, pillar, wall, was built from that as the foundation point. So you would line up with the cornerstone. So here, here it goes. Our practicality looks like this. Everything we do here... We wanted to come back to Jesus. If it's a priority for Jesus, it's a, pri- it's a priority for us. If Jesus cares about it, we care about it. If Jesus is practicing something, we want to practice that. Because he's our cornerstone. Everything that is being built here, and it won't be perfect because we're not perfect, but our desire and purpose is to build it Jesus being the thing that aligns us and comes back to us. I had a great conversation this week with a friend who asked me some questions like, hey, are we, are we doing this with the right motivation? Things like that. And it was such a beautiful moment just to say, you know what, it was this. Is Christ still the cornerstone? And I love that that's, these are the conversations we were having. And I'm like, oh man, I hope so. It's, I want nothing more than to completely align this community to be a temple that is not crooked or off foundation, but is built upon Jesus. 
I'm going to invite Brandon to come up here and play keys if he's in the room. And um, You guys can go ahead and close your eyes. Let's just take a moment, and um, I'm just going to ask you some questions. Let's just, let's just make this practical. Let's just ask ourselves some application questions here. Num- number one, where does the wall of hostility exist within your heart? Maybe, maybe you're thinking of a, a face right now. There's someone who's really hurt you, and you know that you have no desire to become one with that person. You want to stay as far away as you can. Maybe for you, it's something as simple as, oh, I hope I never have to talk to another Democrat again. And we laugh, but, oh, man, another conservative. That's a, that's a wall, Maybe for you, it's, oh, man, that that type of person. What is it? What what is that wall of hostility you've let build up in your heart? Man, would you let Jesus just come and tear down that wall? Would forgiveness enter in? Would, Would bitterness and offense leave? Would Jesus become bigger than your differences? Would Jesus become bigger than the things that you've let become so important to you? What's that wall of hostility? Number two, are you taking advantage of your full access with God? And if not, I'd like to challenge you this week, just real practical. Would you... Challenge yourself to meet with God every single day, just seven days. It doesn't need to be an hour. It doesn't need to be super long. But set your alarm clock 20 minutes earlier. Go on a prayer walk during your lunch. But plan it out. Are you taking advantage of this incredible gift that you get to spend time with the creator of the universe? I mean, you come to church every week. I'm not that great. Go hang out with God. Spend time with Him. Again, go sit down by the beach and drink some good coffee and listen to a worship album. Go sit down with someone who's a spiritual mother or father in your world. I don't know, what is it for you? But go, go and serve the poor. Go to the CRC on Monday and help out with their food pantry. Whatever it is that connects you with God, he's given it to you. You have everything you need to connect with him. Lastly, would you allow your view of church, this temple, just to become more real in your heart? And by this church, I don't mean light church. Whatever church you find yourself, whatever local community is your home, doesn't need to be this one. Would you just ask the Lord this week, God, how can I just continue to help add my unique gifting and flavor and personality to continue to move this forward to a temple where you're dwelling in a rich and powerful way? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for tonight. And 
Gosh, man, it's... The cross is so incredible and powerful and we just could never fathom how vast and and wide it is. And Lord, I ask that tonight you just move us beyond the, the, the incredible reality of our own personal blessing and salvation from it into this greater vision, Lord Jesus, that you want us to be one. You want us to be one with each other and with you. You want us to be the new temple where you dwell in. Would your hope be fulfilled? We love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.